You're listening to the Women in Philanthropy podcast series, a collaboration between Campbell and & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Join us for all four episodes to explore how gender impacts charitable giving. To learn more, visit www.campbellcompany.com. Welcome, everybody. We are here today to talk about women in philanthropy, a conversation around women's giving behavior. And today we have two amazing guests with us. Um, I'm really lucky to be joined with Leslie Wetzel, who is the Associate Vice President of Development and the Director of Women in Leadership and Philanthropy at the University of San Francisco. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks for joining us today in this conversation, as well as Andrea Packer, who is the Interim Director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. I am Sarah Marino, here hosting this conversation. I'm the Senior Consultant at Campbell and company. So today we are here to talk about how women give. What are the behaviors of women philanthropists? And really we're interested in learning about the patterns, the channels, the engagement preferences so organizations can best serve their female donors and really meet their giving needs and and how they implement that philanthropy. So that's what we're here to talk about today. I'm just going to dive right in because it's a big topic and really want to hear from Leslie and Andrea. So maybe we can just start. There's been some research that's come out. It's fascinating. I love diving into it. So Andrea, maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about what the research showed in terms of how is women's giving behavior unique. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with you and Leslie on this podcast. So the, the bottom line here is that the accumulated body of research that we've done at the Women's Philanthropy Institute shows really definitively that men and women have different behaviors when it comes to giving. Now, of course, uh, the research that we do pulls together a lot of data. It's, you know, it's aggregated kind of information. So they are, to some extent, generalities, and there are always going to be exceptions to the rule. But there are three pieces I wanted to share with you right now. And the first is that single women spread out their giving more than single men. And what this means and what the implications of this for fundraisers is that no one fundraiser is going to know the extent of a female donor's generosity. So if she has $1,000 and she makes 10 $100 gifts to 10 different organizations, no one organization is going to understand where she started. And and that's Mm -hmm. a really important piece of information, a data point for fundraisers to appreciate. And when they, when you look at the database and you see a $100 gift, do not immediately dismiss that donor because it's not necessarily a reflection of the extent of her generosity. So the, the other thing to keep in mind with regard to that is that the fundraising profession really became, I mean, it became to emerge of age in the 50s and 60s. And at that time, the primary audience for fundraisers were men, particularly white men. And the pattern, the strategies that developed were designed to appeal to them. So today, when you're in a fundraising campaign and you're thinking about competition, you're thinking about peer pressure and recognition, whose name is going to be on the building, and deadlines, those are all strategies that are perhaps going to appeal more to one demographic in the donor base than to all of them. And in this case, 
the, the research that we've been doing shows that women do give differently, and those fundraising strategies that we've been using over time and very successfully do not necessarily appeal to women and other underrepresented uh, donors in the database. So another interesting point about how women give is that women like to give together. And the best example of this in today's world is the Giving Circle movement. Some research was released through the Women's Philanthropy Institute last year that showed that the number of giving circles around this country has tripled over a 10-year period. So there are now some 1,600, and that's probably an underestimate of the giving circles since many of them happen around the kitchen table, and many of them are also inclusive of groups that give $1,000 or more um, as individuals. But women are still the majority of those, of those collective giving networks. It's about 70% of the collective giving networks say that women are the majority members in them. And no fundraiser should take giving circles lightly. Since their inception, about 1982, giving circles have allocated about almost $1.3 billion to their local communities. And they've engaged somewhere in the vicinity of 150,000 people, and that number is growing every day. New giving circles are be being created. So this idea that women give together is something that happens in local communities. It happens in higher ed institutions. It happens within national infrastructure organizations. And, and Sarah, you know, to some extent, I think the Opportunity International project that you worked on at one time is reflective of that idea. Mm -hmm. Third yeah, area uh, where we know that there are some differences are on the very popular days of giving, uh, made uh, best known, I guess, by Giving Tuesday through the 92nd Street Y. What we found there is really interesting. Women are more likely than men to give on the designated Giving Tuesdays, and because more women give, about 61% of the total dollars raised on Giving Tuesday in 2016, which is what our data analyzed, came from women. So let me stop there and, and let's have some conversation about how this applies in the practical world. Yeah, that is so interesting, Andrew. That is really rich data. What you just said was sparking so many um, ideas and thoughts in my mind, and I want to hear Leslie's experience with this as well. I just wanted to make the one comment around that, that community and that collective giving idea that women are so um, attracted to as part of their philanthropy. And it's actually the conference that you and I first met at a few years ago, Dream, Dare, Do. And in one of our side conversations, uh, a female philanthropist said to me, my philanthropy needs to also be my book club. And I just thought that was so true <laughs> and so funny and just a perfect example that there's a social element, there's an educational element that philanthropy is ticking a lot of boxes for women um, donors. So that just popped into my head when you were sharing that really rich data. Leslie, what, what, what can you offer in terms of, you know, your personal experience? You spent so much time with women philanthropists, um, you know, starting the program at the University of San Francisco and directing that the last few years. Tell me, tell me about some of your experiences and how you've experienced women's giving behavior being unique. Sure. Just starting with the idea that both you and Andrea touched on in terms of women choosing to give together, I think I do see that borne out even in 
programs that don't have formal giving circles. I think women are still coming together to give. And so we're seeing this at the University of San Francisco and that we're, we're engaging women together in groups as volunteers and often being involved and being a part of a program, rolling up their sleeves, getting involved is a precursor to giving. And I think that's something that's really different than how men sometimes give. And there may be a longer time horizon that we're seeing between women getting involved, getting to know the organization, feeling like they're really um, buy into the mission before they choose to make either an initial gift or a, a major gift. And so recognizing that the investment in uh, engaging women at the front end may take a little bit longer, but is likely going to pay off in the long run is something that's important to recognize. And also that you can engage women in a way together that doesn't necessarily mean creating formal giving circles, although that's a great vehicle that a lot of institutions use. And then when, Andrea, when you were talking, I was, and you were talking about, you know, not dismissing the $100 donor, I think that's really important. And we've seen that too, that, you know, your, your donor who may be giving at a, at a smaller annual level, maybe somebody who's in that kind of wait and see, I want to get involved, see what the organization is doing and how they go about doing it before I make a larger gift. And so that's really important to assess where people are. And one thing that I've found to be really helpful is to have really open-ended conversations and questions with women and with potential donors. So and it, it, it has required a, you know, a very sort of intentional way of, of speaking that's different than when I started as a gift officer, I would say 20 years ago without this sort of in my, in my head as I was having conversations with donors, which is to really engage in conversations about the type of impact that, that women want to have and, and having that drive the conversation and then getting to a point where understanding what the impact is, it's easier to then find the right fit at your institution or organization and pave the way for a really meaningful larger gift from from a female donor. And then just one other thing, too, that I think Andrea touched upon, it may have been Sarah, no, but it's just about the, the motivation for giving and the difference that I've seen. So we are in, at the University of San Francisco, we are in the quiet phase of the campaign, maybe not so quiet now that I just said that, but I am seeing um, some of the tools that we have in terms of what are the naming opportunities, what are, you know, capital projects, spaces that people can name, that is not a strong motivator for a lot of our female donors. And so thinking and changing the way we think about what is going to motivate a donor is, is really different, I think, when you're talking about women. We have a, and there's a double-edged sword I see with this that would be interesting to talk about, which is that we do gift announcements and, and try to do some promotion around our larger gifts. And I'm seeing a lot of women who are giving at the, the seven-figure level not that willing to have their gift recognized publicly. And so, again, it, it says that women are not as interested in this sort of public recognition in their giving. They have other motivators. But the flip side to that is that then there aren't these models of women who are giving at a really high level for other female donors to look to. So it's this balance of wanting to respect and honor how 
how donors want to give, but then also just I try to push a little bit to say, you know, can we share this among other female donors so that your your behavior is, you know, serves as a model for others. So it's a bit of a challenge there that I'm finding. Yeah, and that role modeling is really important as well to signal to other, you know, women philanthropists saying that you belong here, we're we're a place that encourages this, um, we want you to be part of it, et cetera. It's a real fine balancing act for sure, wanting to honor the donors' wishes as well. That's really helpful, really helpful insight. I'm wondering if you can share some thought on impact investing. I mean, this is something that you know, I'm based here in the Bay Area. You know, Leslie, you're in San Francisco as well. Um, it's it's across the philanthropic landscape nationwide. We hear about it all the time. Certainly not a new idea, but definitely trending is, you know, impact investing. And and how do women approach impact investing? Do they approach it differently, Andrea? What is the research telling us about that? Thanks, Sarah. Um, impact investing certainly has become a very hot topic. And I had a conversation with a nonprofit leader in Denver yesterday who really put this research that I'm going to share with you in a light that I'm just not 100% sure about. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. So we released a study that looked at the gender differences in impact investing, how people, how men and women approach it. And what we found is that women are more likely to use impact investing to complement their charitable giving. And men are more likely to use impact investing in place of their charitable giving. And the reason that we think that women are behaving in the way they do is that there's been another trend developing, really started, I think, with Women Moving Millions and an all-in for her campaign, which suggests that women today want to leverage all of the resources that they can, whether it's family, whether it's their investments, their portfolio, whether it's their annual giving, they want to take all of that and package it in a way to affect the kind of changes they want to see in the world. It's really stepping up into their philanthropic power and impact investing becomes another tool that they can add to that portfolio to achieve that goal. So for some women, leveraging all their resources might include impact investing and for others it might not. It definitely is. I live in the Midwest. It is definitely much hotter on the coasts, but eventually everything does make it to the Midwest. What this nonprofit leader said to me is that she is seeing the, the difference in the, in the gender attitudes around impact investing play out in the fundraising for the nonprofit community um, that she works with in that men really are moving more of their dollars into the impact investing environment and not engaged in the philanthropy, the annual gifts as much. And so I think that not only do we have an opportunity here to understand the gender differences, but we have an opportunity to make sure that men and women are fully invested in the causes they want to support and that men in this case understand the importance of those annual gifts as well as the value that they get from the impact investing. I mean, in some ways I look at it as one is a little more it's short-term, the other is more long-term, but ultimately what we're interested in sustainability and fulfilling the missions of the nonprofits that donors support. And that really speaks to an earlier point about you know, women who are giving to multiple organizations across many cause areas, and they're giving is simply just more diverse than men, so the impact investing fits really nicely into that 
lesson learned as well. It's just an, another piece of it and, and quite an interesting and, and, and long-term and an efficient one as well. So that's really, really interesting to hear about and to consider when we talk to women philanthropists about what their, what their interests are as, a, as one tool in the toolbox, if you will. And, and so given, given these somewhat divergent behaviors, and Leslie, you touched on this already, so I might start with you with this one. You know, should development officers, major gift officers, should we be cultivating female and male donors differently? And I think we've kind of already answered that, but interested in your thoughts and sort of what that looks like, how we're how we're approaching our conversations with donors, how we're equipping our development officers to cultivate women donors differently, considering these this behavior information that we have now. I definitely think so. I mean, I, I think that some of the best practices that we have as fundraisers remain the same no matter who you're, who you're working with, but there are nuances to how we might approach men and women differently. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting is perhaps an assumption that is made often that women want to give to causes that support women, which is often the case, but not always the case. So certainly giving, I find, especially at a major gift level, giving women a full complement of options of things to fund is really important. And I would say one of the things that I did when I first started in, in this role about four years ago at the university was to look at the visits that gift officers were making and shockingly found that there were, we had some gift officers who had not visited a woman in the entire previous year. So it can wow. be something as simple as making sure that you, you recognize that in high net worth families, the majority of philanthropic decisions are being made by the, by the woman, either together with her spouse or on her own, and much less frequently just by the man. So if you're not even getting to speak with the woman, you're kind of missing, you're missing a big step in the, the cultivation cycle from the outset. So I think even just making sure that a woman is at the table when you're having a conversation uh, with donors is really important. It seems basic, but often gets missed. And then when you are having those conversations, some of what I touched upon before is really not having it be quite so transactional or so recognition-driven, but really listening closely as to you know what the long-term impact is that that a donor wants to have. And I wrote down as we were talking about impact investing, just this idea that it is, I mean, it's impact. And that's what I think for women, whether it is via traditional donation or through impact investing, it's it's the end result and the, the impact that they're giving can have in, in the long run that is really going to drive the drive the giving. So that was a long way of answering. I think first, just make sure you're you're engaging women at the onset, and then when you are, listen to their cues about what is motivating their behavior. To me, those are two the two kind of keys. Yeah, I think the point you make about the decision makers is really important, and I think so often, um, or at least what I've seen in my experience, you have male donors who are often considered sort of the the lead spouse or the main point of contact, if you will, as it often is sort of stated in a database. And that's not always the decision maker. There is often either uh, your partners making decisions together or perhaps the female in the relationship or the woman in this, in this case in the family is really driving those philanthropy decisions but hasn't been engaged directly. So I think talking to the family collectively, figuring out who is actually making those decisions and, and where that decision maker 
you know, sits on the issues and has to have the relationship with the development officer, I think is really important. So just, and you don't know that unless you're out meeting with them, right? So um, I think one practice I've always encouraged major gift officers to implement is really small when you're setting up those meetings. You're just simply inviting the partner to to the meeting, whoever that might be, to make sure that you're cultivating, you know, relationships across the decision makers within the family. Some specific thing. Andrea, is there anything you wanted to add to that in terms of, you know, development officers cultivating female donors differently and the way we approach individual cultivation with women philanthropists? I don't think that we can emphasize the point that Leslie made enough, which is to say mm. to make sure that the woman is at the table. So here's a story that we heard at a presentation, and I suspect that there are many plan, uh, plan giving officers and major gift officers who would have similar kinds of stories. But a plan giving officer came to a new job and was searching the database, scouring it, looking for potential donors, and she found a woman who had been widowed three years earlier, the husband was the alum of the university, and uh, but there were assets in the family. And so the mm-hmm. plan giving officer went to visit the woman and who greeted, you know, who welcomed her in and talked to her about it and asked her for a gift. And she says, you know, in the three years since my husband died, no one from this university has approached me. No one has sent me a card. Nobody has acknowledged my loss. And there was a, my husband loved this university. And my intention had been to leave the estate to the university. But because there had been no engagement in that three-year period, she said, I'm going to leave it elsewhere. And so making sure that, number one, fundraisers understand and appreciate the differences in behavior between men and women is really critical. But number two, it is, as Leslie said, it is really important to make sure that the woman is at the philanthropic table as well. Yeah. If I can just chime in to, because I think, Andrea, you're reinforcing the point that I made earlier, too, which is that for women, engagement is often the precursor to giving. And if that engagement isn't there in a real way, then the giving often does not um, come. Right. And one of the great values of the program at USF is that you started, you may have started with the engagement, but the fundraising was an integral part of what the goal was for the program. And I think we found when we look at the women's philanthropy programs in higher ed historically in the 90s and the early 2000s, we found that some institutions focus really well on the engagement. I think we all do engagement really well, but stop there. And now that we know that, I mean, we know so much more now between the research, the demographics, women's increasing access to income, education, wealth, they all go together. They're all predictors of philanthropy. We know that women are highly motivated to be philanthropic. And so the engagement leading to the giving is an incredibly important part of the process. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to authenticity, doesn't it? I mean, it's such a fundamental human desire just to be seen and to be heard. And I think it, it's, it's that engagement is just, it's really quite fundamental. Um, and I think, you know, women are seeking that um, in their philanthropic lives, that authenticity and that, that really meaningful um, relationship building that you both have been, you know, talking about that, that, that will lead to giving, you know, money is the, the lagging factor in, in this case. I'm wondering, we're going to just wrap up in a few minutes, but I wanted to ask one last question and kind of get down to brass tacks here a little bit, you know, beyond the individual cultivation, the relationship building, what have you seen or how can development shops 
really adapt their activities, their programs, their tactics to cater to women's giving behavior specifically. So what can we do as fundraising organizations to adapt our programs really tactically to, to women's giving and, and the type of behaviors that we see in their philanthropy? Leslie, did you want to start? Sure, I can start. I would say one thing I have seen is so, as I mentioned, I, I came on board four years ago and my role was strictly to work on women in leadership and philanthropy and get the program launched. And since then, my my duties have expanded. And I would say as they've expanded, I've seen the um, my inability really to attend to a very intentional women's philanthropy program, it, it has been diminished. So I'd say, number one, devote resources to it and maintain resources around uh, women's philanthropy because it's easy to have other things compete as priorities. But really, in terms of brass tacks, some of the things, I mean, just even starting at the beginning, for me, trying to establish our baseline and metrics and targets proved to be difficult because of the way our database was set up and the way that um, the entries into people's records was, was based on the, the husband. And so we even needed to start with separating out how people were entered in our database so we could track women's giving separately. So that was, I mean, really to start at the beginning, we needed to do that. But then I've been working with our gift officers to think about what are, what percentage of women are in, or what in our top donors, what percentage of them are women? In our gift officers' portfolios, what percentage of them are women? Are we including women as we have our top prospect strategy meetings? Are women being included in those, are uh, female donors being included in those conversations? What kind of toolkit and training can we put together for our frontline fundraisers so that they're aware of all of these differences that we've talked about today and have those things in mind as they're going out and talking with donors? So they're, they're, I think it's behind the scenes really looking at every system that we have that supports fundraising from prospect research and management to how we do our portfolio reviews to how we prioritize who we go out to see. All of that needs to be recalibrated to women's giving. Andrea, yeah. what would you add to that? How can development shops equip themselves to be really successful at engaging women? I think Leslie covered a lot of really important points. We have to remember, too, though, that fundraising doesn't happen in a vacuum and that in nonprofit organizations, there are other activities that affect the fundraising. And two I want to mention are communications. I mean, fundraising is really hard work, and it's harder now because we have multiple channels with which we have to engage our donors. We really are understanding the concept that the idea that a donor is a donor is a donor is, is outdated. It's very 20th century. And today we're dealing with a much more segmented market. Women are a large part of that. Women are still just over 50% of the population. So it's really important to work with them. The communications that we use need to reflect the donors that we are reaching, particularly if it's a printed piece and, and there's some visuals there. And this is really hard because we want to reflect the age, you know, the generations, the, the diversity, and so forth. But it's, women tend to look at organizations to make sure that the organization reflects who they are. So if all of the photos are of men, then women are not seeing themselves included and may choose not to support an organization because of that. And the other one that is allied to that is the idea of leadership. If a woman, I mean, for instance, I was invited to serve 
on a nonprofit board here in my town, and I went and looked at the board list. I mean, it's not just the work that I do, you know, that I live and breathe at 24-7. It's just what I would do typically. And I looked at the board, and it was, you know, very underrepresented in women. And when I brought this up to the people who were asking me to serve, they said, well, that's why we're asking you. We want to grow the number of women who are serving in leadership positions because we understand that more diverse perspectives lead to a stronger organization. So women will tend to look at the leadership structure, not only among the staff, but in the the boards, the advisory councils, anywhere along those lines. And if they don't see enough of them reflected in that leadership, they may choose not to support that organization, but rather go find another, a different organization that's more aligned with their values and reflects that across the entire organization. So those are two additional points that reinforce the fundraiser's ability to be successful in his and her efforts. If I yeah, can just absolutely. chime in too, um, I would I totally agree with what Andrea is saying in terms of visibility and representation and tactically a couple of things that we've done at the university is to look at um, who is being uh, invited to the university to speak, who's receiving honorary degrees, who's giving graduation speeches, uh, who's nominated for awards internally and externally, and making sure that we have plenty of women in the pool nominated for those things. Uh, I do, I look at our alumni magazine, at least certainly did when I first started counting up the number of women versus men, making sure that we advocate to um, our communications teams uh, that women need to be represented. So I think just taking what you said, Andrea, and, and, you know, we need to be really mindful about where representation exists at all levels and, and advocating all around for all of that. And then on the board side, one thing that we've done is map all of the boards across the university of which there are many more than you would expect, probably about 65 plus. Um, looking at the representation on all of those boards, the job description for each of those boards, and figuring out how do we invite women onto those boards that can then be a pipeline potentially to our board of trustees, and ensuring that women are, again, around the table for conversations and have the capacity and are invited in to serve. And to get to your point, Andrea, of when you're invited onto a board and looking around and not wanting to perhaps be the only woman, how do we empower women to, we know that if there are three met, three female members on a board, that's kind of a critical mass where there's enough representation that women will participate more. So inviting not just one woman, but at least two women every time on a board, or encouraging women to ask their friends to serve on a board. So there's a lot that we can do, I think, behind the scenes in terms of encouraging board participation as we look to creating a pipeline at the highest levels and ensuring that the full potential of our alumni base or donor base is represented at the highest levels of of our institution. That's so excellent. And as a member of one of those um, many boards at the University of San Francisco, I can can speak to how welcoming it feels as an alumna to have the university be committed across disciplines. And I think that speaks to the leadership point that Andrea made as well. Uh, Having representation in the leadership, having commitment and buy-in and making this an organizational priority is really critical when you talk about devoting and maintaining those resources, that it's not a side project, it's not a niche donor group. These are are philanthropists and um, 
I, I think just in closing comments, those are all really helpful tactical suggestions for development shops to take on. And I think, you know, when looking at women's philanthropy and the behaviors of women philanthropists, it, it really comes down to good old-fashioned relationship management and just knowing who your donors are, acknowledging them, listening to them, and then meeting them where they're at. You're listening to the Women in Philanthropy podcast series, a collaboration between Campbell and & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Join us for all four episodes to explore how gender impacts charitable giving. To learn more, visit www.campbellcompany.com. And that process might look a little bit different for women, but it really is the same process of getting to know your donors, acknowledging them, and stewarding them um, as individuals. So Mm -hmm. I I will leave it at that. This has been an amazing conversation. I wish we could go on for much, much longer. I hope the conversations continue with with the podcast. I hope our listeners are enjoying it and can continue the conversations in our own development shop. So thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Andrea. Really appreciate your time and have a wonderful day, everybody. That's it for today's podcast. On behalf of Campbell and Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute, thanks for tuning in. For more fundraising insights, follow Campbell and Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.